Episode 70. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. We're smack in the middle of the soliloquy that ends Act 2, Scene 2, and I must confess that I did the unthinkable again last time by ending in the middle of a line of verse. The sentences within this speech are rather long, it must be said, and there's a substantial change of thought coming right up. We had reached the conclusion of a long image of how the player, whom Hamlet so admires for his ability to show emotion for someone he never even knew, might react if he had the motive and the cue for passion that Hamlet has. He would drown the stage with tears, and so on. I mentioned last week that we'd have a fair amount of antithesis coming up within this speech. As you might have guessed, Hamlet has spent this time imagining the actor's emotions and responses because he will now juxtapose them with his own. Yet I, a dull and muddy metalled rascal, peak like John dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. No, not for a king upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie i' the throat, as deep as to the lungs? Who does me this? Ha! Swoons, I should take it, for it cannot be but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's offal. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. This is a rather complicated and almost masochistic tirade, so we'll break it down to see what's going on throughout. Hamlet begins by calling himself a muddy-metalled rascal. Already there's a lot going on in the sound of this phrase alone. It could be that he's combining metal, strength of character or vigour, M-E-T-T-L-E, with metal, M-E-T-A-L as in armour, to suggest that neither his inner makeup nor his outer armour are clean or strong. If both are stuck in the mud or muddy, they are dull, dirty, and presumably fairly inert. From the 14th century onwards, a rascal meant someone lacking in principles, particularly someone dishonest. Immediately here, we're getting the sense of Hamlet's distress. He's disgusted with himself for his lack of character and his dishonesty. Yet I, a dull and muddy-meddled rascal, peak like John dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. Peak is spelled P-E-A-K in the text rather than peak, P-E-E-K, so while it might sound like he's standing around gawking or stealing glances at what's going on, in fact, the verb to peak, P-E-A-K, in this context means to mope or to sneak around. Precisely the kind of ineffective behaviour we've been seeing from Hamlet already. He compares himself to John a Dreams, which was a generic put-down for a daydreamer, someone with their head in the clouds who gets nothing done at all. Hamlet feels that he's unpregnant of his cause, 
Despite the cause, his father's murder, he feels that there's nothing stirring within him ready to come to life or action. Earlier in the scene, Polonius considered some of Hamlet's answers pregnant, and now Hamlet, by contrast, thinks himself to be anything but. There's nothing forthcoming, and that's what's distressing him. He has all of this cue and motive for revenge, and can say nothing. Nothing. No, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Not even on behalf of the king who was murdered. A damned defeat, indeed, to be so cruelly sent to meet his maker by his own brother. It's interesting that Shakespeare speaks of the king losing his property and most dear life. From this, we can imagine this property be either the king's crown or his kingdom, or indeed a kind of linked image of the king's dearest possession itself, his life. Obviously, Hamlet is still in the process of comparing himself with the actor and to the story he's just told, but it is nevertheless a little bit telling that he says he can say nothing rather than do nothing. Words, 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 indeed. Even as soon as we might be thinking this, he continues questioning himself, as if he's had the idea even faster than we might. He asks, Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs? Who does me this, huh? Hamlet is clearly thinking himself a coward, and wonders why nobody else is confronting him for this cowardice. He wonders why nobody is calling him a villain for this. Why aren't they smacking him in the head or breaking his pate across, pulling at his beard and blowing it in his face? There's a bit of a cult of youth surrounding this character, of course, and so it's rather rare, nowadays at least, to see a Hamlet with a beard. But no more than the discussion of Polonius's beard we had a few hundred lines earlier, it's not so prescriptive as to demand that the actor should grow one to play the part. Hamlet continues to wonder, why does nobody tweak his nose for his villainous cowardice? Why isn't anyone calling him a liar? The proverbial term was that a serious lie came from the throat. Hamlet expands and exaggerates the image so that he imagines someone giving him the lie, or accusing him of it, as deep as to the lungs. Why isn't anyone coming for him? Hamlet might here address the audience directly. He's asking very bluntly, am I a coward? And indeed, there's a famous story about David Warner, who played Hamlet in Peter Hall's production at the Royal Shakespeare Company early in the 1960s. He spoke straight to the audience with these lines, and when he asked, am I a coward? Someone immediately answered, yes. Warner said, it was an electric moment, eradicating the distance between the actor, the character and the audience. Certainly it meant that the lines that followed, as Hamlet wonders why nobody's calling him out for his weakness, felt all the more immediate. Ha, he continues, wounds, or by Christ wounds, he deserves it. He should take such abuse, for it cannot be but that he is pigeon-livered and lacks gall. It was believed that pigeons were so mild-tempered perhaps they were back in Shakespeare's day at least, as opposed to the flying rats we have today, because their livers did not produce gall, or bile, which was considered by contemporary medicine to be the humour, or bodily fluid, that controlled and provoked anger. 
so Hamlet has nothing brewing inside him that will provoke him to the appropriately angry response. The phrase lily-livered always comes into my mind here, but in fact Hamlet predates the earliest recorded use of that phrase. Shakespeare has several depictions of liver-based cowardice across his plays. Milk-livered, white-livered, pigeon-livered here in Hamlet, and of course lily-livered itself, which features several times in King Lear. Hamlet lacks the gall to make oppression bitter. Right here, I can't decide whether this means that oppression isn't bitter enough to spur him into action, or that he lacks the bile that will provoke him to making Claudius's oppression of him something so bitter that it has to stop. And there's nothing to say that it can't be read either or both ways. Certainly, he feels that he is weak and cowardly, since otherwise he would by now have fatted the region kites with this slave's offal. In other words, the hunting birds would have already grown fat on the meat from Claudius's carcass. Again, there's more antithesis slightly woven into this, because Hamlet never misses a chance to reduce Claudius, don't forget, the king, in any way possible. It's not just that these birds would be feasting on a king's royal body. No, they'd be fattening themselves on offal from the corpse of a slave. He might not be taking any physical action, but Hamlet's words and thoughts at least are violent and deeply transgressive. Very quickly, we move from the prince wondering who might call him villain to Hamlet going through a great list of insults to Claudius, all of them based around him being a villain. The excitement of feeding this corpse of his to the vultures shakes something loose, and he calls Claudius bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Bloody, of course, because there's blood on his hands, he is a murderer. Bawdy has likewise appeared earlier in the scene when Hamlet suggested that if he's not watching a tale of Baudry, Polonius will very likely fall asleep. It's picked up again here and it's a little darker because he means that Claudius is immoral, sexually inappropriate for sleeping with his brother's wife. And remember that the incest question was still a little shocking for Shakespeare's audiences while Henry VIII's daughter was still on the throne. But Claudius is not just a bloody, bawdy villain. He's also remorseless, treacherous, lecherous and kindless. Hamlet's first line in the play, a little more than kin and less than kind, suggested even back then, before Hamlet knew very much, that Claudius lacked some of the basic good human nature. And now he's blasting the king for having none at all. It's a terrific litany of Claudius's sins and shortcomings. This anger is starting to bubble up and prove that perhaps Hamlet's liver is producing gall after all. But what action might it provoke in him? Next time, we will complete this soliloquy, if I've any voice left, God knows, and see the plan that Hamlet has in mind. I hope you'll join me then. For now, thanks so much, as usual, for listening, and do please give us a like or a rating on iTunes. It really does help spread the word about the podcast around the world. This week, we had a particular milestone as the podcast passed 50,000 listens in over 75 countries. It's really a thrill to know that this little project of mine has reached so many people, and I hope those numbers will continue to grow as the years go by.